As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. Hello, all you fine podcast humans. Thank you for downloading or streaming this particular podcast because uh, we're here talking about independent music, whether it's punk, hardcore, indie rock, whatever you want to call it. It was birthed out of small, sweaty rooms or maybe sweaty bedrooms or basements or whatever it is. It all comes from that DIY scene that we hold so dear And I have, of course, a great guest this week because that's what we do. We document the scene, so to speak. I have Emma Boster, who's the vocalist from one of my favorite metalcore bands going on right now, Dying Wish. And Dying Wish was an interesting band because I'm an old human within the context of the punk and hardcore scene. And I had seen their name around, just never bothered to check them out that much. It was just like, okay, cool. Yeah, another, another band doing that sort of, you know, heavy metalcore stuff. Cool. But then the record Fragments of a Bitter Memory came out last year, and I listened to it, and I loved it so much. It hit on everything that I enjoy about this particular music genre, and uh, Emma had many things to say on that record, and it was uh, it came through crystal clear, and I loved it. And then at that point, I was like, yo, I am a fan of Dying Wish, and I had to have Emma on the show, so... We missed each other a couple of times, but then we finally were able to make it happen because, you know, that's what happens. Persistence, you know, ideas that just linger in your head. I've got this absolutely ridiculous um, Google Doc where I just toss a bunch of ideas in there and then eventually I take them off and get around to it and uh, it's so much fun. So shout out to Emma for coming on the show and then shout out to my good friend Tom who manages her band and yeah, just a great human being in general. But If you are looking to do a favor for me, you can go email the show, email me, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. Always love to correspond with you. Find humans out there. Fine, not find. Sometimes I just run across words where it's like, oh man. Anyways, email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. You can also leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you so desire. I would appreciate that. Or you can go to Spotify if you listen to it on that platform and give it some stars. Those are the easiest, simplest ways that you can support this show because when you do that, it makes it legitimate in the eyes of a computer and the algorithm. And after all, that's what we're all chasing, right? (laughs) Oh, man, sad state of affairs. But um, yeah, let's talk to Emma. 
such a good conversation. She had a lot of interesting things to say. And it was funny because she was, uh, she actually expressed this uh, off mic and I am not like throwing it under the bus by um, expressing it, but she was, uh, she was kind of like nervous. And I understand there's that like nervous anticipation of like doing an interview and like, you're really excited. Um, but she did a great job and she articulated uh, her thoughts very appropriately. And uh, I loved having this discussion with her. So here is Emma and uh, from Dying Wish, and check the band out first and foremost, and then uh, check this conversation out. Like I was mentioning, off mic, or technically on mic, but you get what I'm saying. Uh, the idea that like, I genuinely like your band a lot and I will be the first to admit that I did not check your band out for a very long time because I was just like, I don't know. I mean, I'm an old human being and I am just like, wow, do, like, do I really need to listen to like another Metallic hardcore band? Like, is it they're called what dying wish? Like, uh, I don't, I don't know about that. And honestly, I was just like, you know, looking at this as kind of like a derivative, uh, project and that's my fault, obviously. Do you find that uh, people that are, you know, sort of of a certain age, whether they express this to you directly or not, uh, might have that opinion of just like, oh, yeah, this is like stuff I've heard before or whatever. And then once they actually, you know, either do check you out or see you live uh, are are kind of um, opening their eyes a little bit wider to be like, oh, actually, like they are legitimate. This is cool. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there's a lot of young bands like trying to do a throwback sound right now um, and, you know, effectively putting their own take on it. Um, but I think that, you know, we're there. There's a there's a handful of bands that are doing a very specific sound really well. Like, for example, Foreign Hands does the um, Poison the Well sound remarkably. And that's a new band. And, um, you know, that might take a second for people to catch on to. But, you know, there's a specific sound that, you um, we are really trying to replicate with our own spin on it. And I know that that's like kind of a popular thing that a lot of other bands are doing right now. So I could definitely understand why people wouldn't immediately catch on to the hype. Um, but um, I'm glad that you, you know, gave us a shot and everyone else that will eventually or has. Yeah, no, it, it is true. Cause I do think that, I mean, what you're articulating of that idea that, I mean, especially too, as people grow older within the context of punk and hardcore, there does get that diminishing uh, attention span where it's like, oh yeah, of course I, you know, like I listen to all of these type of bands and um, that's like my music taste ends in 2005 or whatever. And then to convince a person to check something out new, like you have to go through all of these different hurdles um, in order for people to pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It, but I guess on the flip side too, like I would look at your band in many respects as being uh, very much a, a gateway band where, you know, someone can discover Dying Wish and be like, this is the heaviest thing I've ever heard. And then from there, they're able to not only get to more, get into more contemporary bands, but look at the influences that you, you have pulled into the band as well. Right, exactly. And um, that that's the thing, you know, that I would love because, um, obviously like we're, we're a modern band, but we have a throwback sound and, um, I would love for people to listen to Dying Wish and then, you know, see what our influences are, like a band, a band like, uh, Kill Switch Engage, Black Dolly Murder, um, At The Gates, 
and you know um, they might be younger and they didn't grow up really listening to those to those uh, bands and that might be able to click for them on another level now you know that they have had it put into a different context for them putting the focal point more on you as an individual were you actually born and raised in Portland I wasn't able to uh, derive that from the internet um so I have been born and raised in Oregon I um, was born in Bend Oregon um, and my mom was very young so we lived with my grandparents there until I was five and then um, my mom moved me down to Southern Oregon where she went to school at Southern Oregon University and um, then we just kind of stuck around there when she graduated and she is born and raised from Portland. So eventually she was like, I got to get out of here, go back to the city. So I've been in Portland now um, since I was 13 and I'm 27. So it's been 14 years since I've been in Portland. So spent uh, at least half my life here. Right, right. Um, yeah. And I mean, Bend is a really interesting city. <laughs> I guess it's an understatement. <laughs> It is. And I mean, especially then, I mean, now it's um, definitely become a little more industrialized and less of like a less of a hippie town out in smack dab in the middle of the mountains. So um, but yeah, I mean, I think I've seen every part of Oregon change a lot over the last five to 10 years. Sure. Yeah. Especially like you were saying, being able to experience all the different sides of Oregon, because I think so many I mean, you know, right or wrong. Like people just think of the show Portlandia and are just like, oh yeah, that's an easy pop culture reference point. But it's like, there's so much going on in the state in general. It's not just the, you know, whatever typified experience that people have with that. Yeah. I mean, I would say Portlandia specific to Portland is actually pretty hilariously accurate. Yep. (laughs) Um, But I mean, you leave our little leftist utopia, if you even want to call it that, and you travel 30 minutes outside in any direction of the city, and it's completely different. So I would agree with that. Yeah, for sure. And so uh, as you were kind of bouncing around the uh, greater Oregon area, what was your, uh, like you said, you were living with, was both your grandparents and your mom, you guys were all living under one roof? Yes. Yeah. Until I was, until I was five. Okay, got it. And then it was you and your mom on your own? Yeah, and my mom got married. And so, um, you know, and then I had a sister when I was um, nine. So uh, different different changes in my home growing up dynamic-wise with dif- living with different people. But yeah, always, always had a family, for sure. That's cool. Uh, and, and was your uh, only reason I ask about the, uh, you know, step-parent, step-sister scenario, like I myself come from a family of divorce and, you know, had always these interesting, um, you know, being thrust into situations where it's like, oh, yes, like, you know, I have a stepbrother. And I'm like, oh, oh okay, what does that mean? <laughs> right. You, was it, uh, I guess, was it a, a difficult adjustment or were you able to kind of plug in and play right away? Um I have to correct myself. I meant half sibling, which is even weird for me to say because she's like 100% my sister, but you know, we share half of half of a blood parent. Um, but no, actually that was, um, I mean, if we're going to get personal, like that was a really, um, kind of a difficult transition. I, I love my sister, but you know, it was, it was me and my mom for quite some time. And then, um, her ex-husband came into the mix and then, you know, I was just so used to being an only child cause I'd been on my own, um, for nine years. And then my little sister was born and I don't really think I was ever really ready to be a big sister. Um, 
but I mean, it's, it's a role that I've, I've grown into. Um, and it definitely, uh, having a sibling by the time I got so used to not having one was definitely a little, a little shocking to, to me as a kid and, you know, feeling like, I, I mean, I had a really, um, ter, like a tumultuous relationship with her dad. So her coming into the mix just kind of like complicated things, but, um, I mean, I hate to, <laughs> it's not her fault at all. She's a wonderful oh. kid. And, um, but yeah, it definitely was, uh, very, uh, challenging for me as a, as a young kid. Sure. Well, and I can imagine too, with the idea when you have bonded so closely with your mother and it's kind of, you know, I'm projecting here, but just the idea of, you know, it's a me and you versus the world, ma, like that sort of idea. And then all of a sudden to in- introduce these other extenuating, uh, relationships, that's going to take something to get used to. Yes, absolutely. And I'm sure it's even, you know, it's also difficult for the people coming from the outside into that, you know, to feel like you could be disrupting that or um, feel like, you know, um, it's a different, it's a different dynamic and inclusion. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm going to uh, maybe play a little armchair psychologist uh, here, but uh, you you seem just from the outsider's perspective, like a a very um, uh, precocious little girl (laughs) where you like you seem outgoing, but at the same time, like, you know, not shared to or not scared to share your opinions about a lot of things. Um, Was that kind of always who you were as a kid and growing up? Or was that something that you kind of grew into? Yeah, um, I think I've always very been very much so been unapologetically myself in a lot of ways. Um, I have always been kind of different. Um, and my mom, I mean, I, I was raised by a very, uh, accepting and open, uh, group of women in my, in my family. It's very matriarchal. And, um, so I've always been kind of wacky and, um, uh, I guess accepting and, Strange, but uh, I guess I wouldn't. I wouldn't say strange, but yeah. Sure, sure, right. Le- right. <laughs> less, less than common, we'll say. <laughs> right, right. I was definitely, I was definitely an outcast in school in a lot of ways. Right. Was that because of your things that you were interested in, or was it just kind of your uh, you like to stick to yourself, or was it kind of a combo of all those things? I think it was a combo. It definitely was um, me being interested in things that. Um, a lot of the people I was surrounded by didn't understand. And then also, I think it was a bit of a defense mechanism as well. Sure. Protecting yourself from someone letting you down or whatever. 100%. Yeah. Okay. okay. (laughs) (laughs) The, uh, and so were you attracted to, you know, sports? Like, I I mean, as far as like, once you were getting into, you know, junior high and high school and stuff like that, what were you attracted to? Did school interest you? Art? Where were you at? Yeah, I mean, I, I was raised in kind of a sports home. And so I've always loved basketball. I played basketball in middle school. And um, I was kind of taught that uh, from my stepdad that, you know, sports were cool and um, music was a waste of time. So I had done choir here and there in elementary school. And then it wasn't until I moved to Portland and I wasn't able to try out for sports teams because I had like missed that dateline opportunity um, that I just enrolled in choir and made that my new thing. And that was where my um, happiness and motivation was lying in middle school and high school. 
Got it. Got it. And uh, I have to ask, what position did you play in basketball? Um, I I played a guard. Um, I tried point guard, and I I'm not very good at any shooting that's not in the paint, really. Um, but I I am pretty aggressive uh, defensively, so I was I was a pretty okay guard. I'm not fantastic by any means. Right, right. You were like, you know, I'm I'm the person that's going to be, you know, driving in the lane and, and hurting my body potentially, and then I'm a bulldog on defense, and that's what you're going to get. Exactly. Got it, got it, yeah. Not, <laughs> not, not one of your favorite players, uh, Dame Lillard. I'm by no means, I'm by no means Dame behind the arc at all. <laughs> right, no, no Dame time over there. No logo for me. <laughs> um and so I, I'm going to guess that around that time is kind of when more, uh, like you said, you were already doing choir, but where did the, I guess, independent strain of music start to get introduced to you? Uh, was that through friends? Was that just by happenstance, you tripping across something? How'd that come into your life? Um, I am of the age where MySpace was where I discovered music, um, Mostly in sixth and seventh grade, I discovered bands like Bring Me the Horizon. Um, I discovered bands like Children of Bodom. I was listening to Black Sabbath and just like a really strange mix of things because I had still lived in a small town where I wasn't exposed to any live music. Um, And then moving to Portland, um, I met at least a couple friends who were interested in Actually, I met Jeff, who plays drums in Dying Wish, and Pedro, who plays guitar in Dying Wish, because we went to middle school together in the Portland area. And um, so actually, Pedro and I shared a lot of music back and forth. Um, At the time, it was stuff like A Skylit Drive and, you know, just uh, Drop Dead Gorgeous and scene bands like that. But uh, mostly through friends and online and um, burning CDs. And then I went to Warped Tour and started going to shows from there. I love it. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, the the MySpace core era, like that, I mean, it's so hard, like, and I kind of sense it in your voice, like, it's, it's sometimes hard to describe that, where it's like, (laughs) yeah, I looked at the top eight, and I I figured out, like, they had, you know, my friend had a song on their profile, and it's just like, it, it sounds like such an insane idea now, where, like, prior to that, you know, you could be like, oh, yeah, I downloaded an MP3, I wasn't even sure if it was like, the real thing off Napster or whatever, but like MySpace was such, it's such a hard thing to contextualize. Right. Yeah. Um, and the, f- it's crazy how many bands really, uh, had a career because of MySpace. And I don't think that a platform like that really now exists. I mean, there are artists that promote themselves on like TikTok now and stuff like that, but I don't think it by any means it's not um, a platform that's curated for music specifically, which is what MySpace really was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh no, you're right. And I, 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 that idea of it being hard baked into the way that these profiles existed and then, you know, the, the top eight and all of those things that were such a pivotal part, like getting in a top eight of, you know, your friend's band, you just feel like all of a sudden you signed a record deal. You're like, Oh my gosh, <laughs> like, They've got so like they have over a million plays. They're like, this is crazy. I'm gonna be huge. See, I wasn't that cool. So <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. No. But but able to at least listen to the bands that were on those profiles and then obviously the world opened up. Absolutely. Yeah. 
um, did because I know that was a a part of um, the discovery mechanism for people getting into music at that time. Did um, those bands, uh, you know, kind of like their philosophical beliefs, whether it was like, oh, I understand the difference between like, you know, a Christian metalcore band versus, um, you know, this this random, (laughs) you know, atheist deathcore band. Like, did that become apparent as you were getting into that stuff? Yeah, I mean, I kind of have always really gravitated towards artists that have a movement behind their music. Um, And this is kind of embarrassing to say, but I mean, when I was 13, I loved Never Shout Never and bands like I Set My Friends on Fire because they were vegetarians and they like, they were the reason why I initially started stopped eating meat because I was like, oh, this is something I'm passionate about. And, you know, you don't really find that kind of context so much in that kind of music. But I think that when I started listening to hardcore, that is when I was like, oh my God, like this is what I've been looking for. I, it's, it's music with a purpose kind of thing. I, I, it makes me so happy to hear that because I do think that, uh, I mean, I, for years, I personally worked at PETA too, like when that existed and like working with artists, exactly like Christopher Drew could not have been more influential of a person getting people introduced to that idea of vegetarianism. And clearly he's not like singing about it, like, (laughs) but it's just like Mm -hmm. that idea was able to capture so many people who are never going to listen to earth crisis and actually like it. Like you have to have different entry points. Right. And there's definitely more of a fan aspect when it comes to Christopher Drew than anywhere close to something like, you know, earth crisis, like these fans, they idolize someone like Christopher Drew. And so when he talks about topics um, that could potentially change someone's viewpoint or, you know, inspire them. I think that that is just as important as writing your music about something. Um, to, I, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I really, I, I appreciate you uh, articulating that just because I, I do think that there, especially too, when you talk about these really um, charged philosophical movements, whether it's, you know, veganism, you know, socialism, a- anything that people will have a strong opinion on, there needs to be you know, on ramps for people getting into that. It can't just be like, oh, you you dive into this and you immediately are at the most, you know, radical, uh, radicalized version of yourself. It's like you have to ease your way into it. And that's a perfect way to do that. Yeah. I mean, it's all about education and, you know, nobody walks into a room, um, you know, and knows everything. It's all about having, creating the space for us to um, learn and teach each other. Yeah, totally, totally. And so did you care about school? Like, were you, quote unquote, applying yourself as a uh, as a younger person, Emma? Or were you uh, not caring about school? I did um, probably until I, um, uh, honestly, I don't want to say that it was music that made me care less. But um, once I started really connecting with music, I think I just stopped caring about academ- academics because – Um, I just really felt like I had a purpose in life to do something musically. And I was really only applying myself in, in like the choir department, um, and, uh, putting my energy there because I didn't really think that anything else mattered at the time. And I was like, well, if I want to do music someday, like I don't really need to, you know, get an A in pre-calc. So, um, you know, I kind of just floated by and I think, um, I also was unaware of it at the time, but especially my junior and senior year of high school, I really became 
depressed. And I don't like, like I said, I had no idea what was even going on, but I was just kind of like floating through life, um, without any, um, real thought put to it. There's only one place that you need to be looking on the internet for anything band merch related, and that is rockabilia.com. And using this promo code 100 words or less, that's number 100, will get you 10% off your order. And I know you've probably heard me time and time again talking about how great Rockabilia is. But now, today is that day for you to dive into the website, find out about all of the amazing items they have. I don't care what you're into, what musical style. You will find something that you will love, and then you will order for yourself, and then you will go back to the website, order more, order for some gifts for upcoming birthdays or holidays or whatever it is. No joke. An amazing company, independently owned, all ships from the Midwest. I love them so much, and there's a reason that you need to go there. Not only because I am advocating for them, but I'm giving you a 10% off offer, 100 words or less. Use that promo code. That way, they know that I sent you to them. You knocked on the door. You got some cool band merch. Everybody wins. So thank you, Rockabilia, for your continued support and buy more band merch. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different things that stress us out, right? Like maybe it's something really, really small, like, man, that parking space, it's always taken. And I wish that I would be able to like get it instead of, you know, this person that maybe, you know, is the most courteous and considerate. I know that's something very random, but it's true. We all experience different things throughout the day that trigger us in so many different ways. And there are many times where I have been like, I wish that I had a a spot or a repository for me to, you know, get this stuff off of my chest. Because if you bottle it up, that is no bueno. And then all of a sudden you explode on a coworker or a friend or a family member being like, the parking spot. And people are like, what are you talking about? That is where therapy comes in. And I love working with BetterHelp because I'm a huge advocate for therapy, broadly speaking. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, please give BetterHelp a try. It is so easy because it's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you do is fill out a brief questionnaire, and then you get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you are not vibing with the therapist for any reason, you can switch it out at no additional charge. Get things off of your chest with BetterHelp. So visit BetterHelp.com slash Ray today to get 10% off of your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Ray. Check the backseat. Check the backseat. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the back seat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hey, everyone, this is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. Here's a clip from an upcoming episode featuring the weekly home checks, Keyshawn Lane, that you won't want to miss. 
a common mistake that a lot of people do. They use fabric softener when it's not so great for your clothes. Should we never be using fabric softener? No, you should not ever be using oh. fabric softener. Oh. It leaves a deposit on our clothes, which is also left in the machine. And it also makes the clothes highly flammable. Wait, what? <laughs> yes. What you want to do instead is just use a quarter cup of vinegar. And that'll make them softer? That'll make them softer. And if you wanted some kind of scent, you can use essential oils. Wow, wow, wow. Catch new episodes of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult every other Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Grown Up Stuff. Like you said, you were really tr- attracted to music and you wanted to figure out what that meant. I- I'm sure you didn't have a specific uh, idea of like, oh, yes, I'm going to play in a band and be, you know, <laughs> make my living off of that. How were you kind of viewing the approach of you doing something with music, whatever that may mean from a career perspective? Um, I wasn't really sure. I um, was really passionate about going to shows and I knew that eventually I would want to be involved in, you know, the business aspect of music. And I just didn't even know where to start, though. And that was the hardest part was I was too young to really network with anyone. And um, so I was just kind of going to shows and like, um, my purpose was attendance, which I do think is a really important purpose. And um, people don't need to necessarily do anything else um, to make a difference. But um, it really took me quite some time to figure it out. And I'm going to be completely honest with you. Totally. Yeah. No. And and especially too, because it's not like you have these, uh, roadmaps to look at in order to figure out like, oh yes, this is how this person has made a living. Cause you know, you're just starting to attend shows and understanding all the ins and outs of not only what putting on a show means, but then just the idea of like, well, how do I, how do I like get myself food to eat? Like, what? how, how do I do that? <laughs> Right. Yeah. And I mean, especially being a young person, I I moved out of my house when I was 18 and I was just like instantly in survival mode where it took me years to really figure out what I was passionate about and how I could, um, how I could pursue a life that way. Sure. And, uh, so did you, uh, go to college or pursue higher learning or you immediately were just like, all right, let's figure it out in the world. I, didn't until I was 21. And I went to one semester of college and I took a math class and a literature class. And I was like, this is not for me. Um, I I think I am um, very neurodivergent where I have kind of a hard time sitting in a classroom and paying attention. But also like I had opportunities um, where I had started booking shows and I was kind of starting to get a grasp on um, what this industry, um, looks like. And I was like, I don't need a degree for this. I know people who do, but it's not necessary, you know, and I, I, um, have been in debt since I was, you know, 18 years old and knew what that was. And so why am I going to continue to dig this hole for myself? Especially if you're like, (laughs) this is not actually going to help me in a practical way. Right. And I'm not opposed. I I mean, I've been interested, um, you know, maybe one day if I decide that, you know, I would like to take a break from music, I would like to do some work within the community and maybe go back to school and learn about social work. But until I need to build a new skill set, I don't think that it's necessary for me right now. Sure. Um, 
And I'm going to guess that as you started to get exposed to, you know, shows and like what that actually was, because like you said, as you were, you know, getting into independent music via MySpace, you were existing in an area that didn't really have that, you know, community of like going to shows and stuff like that. What, as you started to see more of the world through that lens, what attracted you to, you know, going to shows and and, uh, seeing that uh, scene kind of build up? Honestly, for me, it it was the mentality Um, because I I really started going. I went to my first DIY show when I was 16 and it was Punch in an anarchist bookstore in Portland. And um, I had gone to, you know, a a couple big hardcore metalcore tours in the area before that. But that was the first time that I saw DIY in action. And it was the mentality and the spirit behind it where I was like really uh, almost felt like intoxicated by it. And even to this day, like being in a room full of, you know, 70 people just jumping around on each other and like having the most fun possible, like um, there's something still really uh, magnetic about that towards me. It's the energy for me. Right. And and I'm sure just because I know of, you know, what you kind of ended up doing in regards to, you know, show promotion and working at venues and stuff like that, just the probably the logistics of it all, like how it this gets pulled off was probably engaging to you as well. Yeah. And I mean, it's very different. I started booking hardcore shows in 2016 and it's very different than, you know, um, having four bands playing a bar where everyone's sharing all the same gear and, you know, we have to be done at 10 and whatever. It's very different than... Um, working in rooms that are anywhere from 300 cap to 1500 cap and like working on a bigger scale production, which um, was honestly, I, something that I never really expected to um, fall in love with so much, but I I do really love the, the production of um, bigger live music as well. And it's very, yeah, it's different, but it's, it's really interesting to see how it started and how I can't, how I guess I got to this point and how much it still means to me, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think too, there's that idea of participating because whether or not you know what you're doing, you just kind of get attracted to things and you're operating off of instinct. But then that is how you are, you know, becoming more active in the scene and contributing, you know, even if you didn't play in a band, you would still be like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm doing this because I'm interested in it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so... I'm going to dying wish. Is that like your literal first band or did you play in some, um, you know, pretty interesting bands before it? I would say it's my first real band. Um, (laughs) um, I wrote a song with a band when I was 15 and it never got recorded or anything. And um, I mean, I would love to have that still to this day to, you know, to, look back on. But, um, then I started a different band with two members that are in dying wish. And, um, (laughs) it's kind of one of those things where like, we don't really talk about it because it was so bad. And it was just like, we, it was really all of our first band and, um, we didn't know what we were doing at all. And, um, but, uh, that is funny to look back on. And then, um, we kind of dissolved that and we were like, okay, like, we kind of understand what direction we go, we want to go in now. Let's start dying wish. And then, um, that was with Jeff and Pedro who I mentioned earlier, I went to school with. And then, um, Sam joined the band and, um, he's the one who 
uh, is the songwriter essentially, uh, for the instruments and writes all the riffs and stuff. So, um, before that it it was just kind of, you know, things that we were not really taken so seriously. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you know, to be fair, like I don't, I personally don't care how terrible people's first bands are because like they should be like, I, I, especially if it's like really of the moment where it's like, you know, I probably, you know, if you revealed the band name, I could easily tell you what you sounded like. And I think that's a good thing, you know? So don't be so hard on yourself. No, no, absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I think that it's really important to look back on, um, the things that you've created in the past and how much you've learned and how much better you've gotten. It's, it's, it's a motivator for me for sure. Right. Very, very good way to look at it. It's like, oh yeah, that was my, you know, sort of funny first band. And, you know, like I I learned from that and I'm hopefully not as bad as I was back then. Right. And, you know, I think being uh, a, a woman in the scene, I definitely could have started a band when I was younger, but there was always like this, um, uh, I guess unspoken feeling within myself that girls don't play in hardcore bands necessarily, even though I'd seen it happen, it just like wasn't as common. And so, um, I, I think that maybe, you know, if I had grown up a different gender, I would have started playing music sooner, but I wasn't in my band until I was, or my first band until I was like really in my early twenties. Right. Yeah. No, it's true. Especially when you are not seeing yourself represented there. It's like, yes, it may be a notion, but then there's also that idea of it's like, is this just like gimmicky? Like, I mean, I'm not doing it as a gimmick, but people are going to perceive it as such. And I'm sure that it still happens. The tokenization of it's like, oh yeah, like you want to listen to that, you know, Dying Wish. Like, yeah, it's a chick that sings for that band. It's like, that still exists, even though it's much less, it's much more quiet than it was, you know, whatever, 10 to 15 years ago. Yeah. And I think it's because we're starting to have conversations about it. And, um, you know, I totally understand because I used to say female fronted too. I think we all did at one point. And I think it's really important to have the conversations with each other patiently about how that could be destructive to, uh, women in the scene and also women artists. And one thing that I've seen a lot lately is people being like, oh, Dying Wish should go on tour with Spirit Box and Venom Prison and Sea Space Cowboy. And it's like, yes, like, I mean, I guess it would be cool if all these different girls and bands were on the same tour. But to me, it makes sense for those bands to be out touring separately, you know, where they can be exposed to more people um, in different rooms rather than um, all concentrated in front of the same crowd. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. For sure. And it, it, it people are tempted to do that. Cause I mean, I, I remember this was more so in the mid two thousands, like when I was working at uh, century media records and there was that whole, you know, it's like lacuna coil in this moment and a lot of metal bands with females and it, there, there were tours that existed around that. And it, while it was gimmicky, it was just that idea that there was also highlighting the fact that, Yes, like there are important bands that are playing music that are made up of, you know, people beyond just the quote unquote typical typical band person. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so you as you started to, you know, grow more confident in regards to, you know, being able to put together a band and uh, existing in the world from that perspective, um, was it was the idea from the inception to always be really, um, I guess, uh, supercharged in the way that you were uh, expressing your beliefs as far as, you know, whether it's 
straight edge animal rights, like all, all of those things. Um, was that always kind of the, the tip that you wanted to uh, go on or did that evolve as the band went along? Um, I think that our core values as people is really important to the identity of the band, but it's not the identity of the band. Um, however, it was, like I mentioned earlier, I have always been gravitated towards music um, with a movement behind it, whether it just be our individual movements as people or the messages that we're putting into our songs. And I think that we, I would like to strike a good balance um, where, you know, we can talk about difficult topics and, um, you know, put certain ideas out into the world. Um, and it was always kind of something that I wanted to do with this project, but I wasn't sure. I'm still kind of trying to figure out how, how much of it I want to, to put into the music. Sure. That's, uh, and when bands do, kind of plant the flag of what it is that you are discussing or talking about, you know, there does become that flip side of the coin of like, Oh, are we just going to be immediately alienating, not even from a fan base perspective, but like to get a person to pay attention to what we are doing, because we think there's some, there's a valuable conversation to be have. They may just be turned off because it's like, Oh, this is not what I think. So I'm not even going to interact with it. Yeah. Um, and you know what? I don't think that a lot of what we're saying is so extreme. I mean, I guess that there are certain things like, um, like myself being an abolitionist. Um, I can understand why that would be off-putting to some people, but the message behind abolition is, um, more community and less, um, systematic structure. And I think that that is um, something that a lot of people can relate to if they, you know, really try to understand the message before putting it off completely. Right, exactly. Be able to put the pieces together to understand like, oh, yes, I agree with 70% of this, but I don't like 30%. But that doesn't mean I should throw out the whole message. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I totally expect people to disagree. um, But there are certain things that I speak out on that if someone is vehemently against that message, then yeah, our music isn't for them. And that's okay. Like if you are an avid cop supporter, um, you might not like a couple of the songs on the record. And, you know, I feel very strongly about it, um, about policing in America. And um, if it's not for you, then um, I wasn't, I, I don't think the intention was trying to make it for those people anyways. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's not the audience you're trying to play to. <laughs> right, right. And um, I don't know, that's not to say that people could overlook the message. Um, I know I couldn't listen to a band that had a pro-cop message and like overlook that. But I guess that's just the way that uh, humanity and uh, society works, you know? Well, and I think to your point, A, um, especially within the context of independent music, I think there are much clearer lines that can be drawn with that because, I mean, I'm sure that you've experienced some sense of this where I just find it funny, like a person who attends a rise against show and then is like, you know, the antithesis of who they express to be their political opinions. And, you know, and they're like, Oh yeah, I like the music, but like, I can't stand this band's politics. And it's like, Oh, okay. Like, I guess you just want to listen to, you know, swing life away acoustically. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, 
and so as you were, you know, kind of getting that experience of playing in bands and uh, at that time too, uh, you were putting on shows, like you mentioned, um, <clears throat> I, I asked this question not to embarrass you in any capacity, but I know that there are, uh, you know, mistakes a lot of people make as they're starting to put on shows, whether it's like, oh my gosh, I severely undercalculated how many kids were going to show up and, you know, I did this thing wrong or whatever, but then because you have that failure you learn a lot based around that were there any are there any things that kind of stick out of uh, as you started to you know put on shows that you just like laugh in retrospect like i can't believe i did it this way um i honestly think probably the biggest thing was how i would curate bills with locals but um a lot of that had to do with such a lack of local bands to put on and that's still an issue that i'm having Um, but I have definitely, you know, like put a ban on a bill because I thought that they were going to draw people and it just was like total, and I, I enjoy a mixed bill, but like, it was like a total 180 and I was like, Oh, this is just kind of weird now. But, um, you know, uh, you have to make mistakes to learn from them. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think that's, like I said, I asked that not to embarrass anybody, but it's just, especially when you are mixing all of these things together, the, passion for the music you wanting to contribute there's money involved there's all of these uh, extenuating factors that are coming into play but then you have to try to figure out how to like execute this event it's like there's a lot going on there mm-hmm. yeah and i have been really lucky to um have a handful of people uh that have backed me and supported me through it so i feel like if it weren't for guidance of a handful of people that um i definitely would have made more mistakes um but there's definitely, I've always had a really solid support system of people wanting to, to help out. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Cause then you can lean on them and say like, Hey, should I do it this way? And they're like, no, 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 no don't do that. <laughs> right. Yeah. As long as, as long as, you know, people are afraid to, or aren't afraid to give me some straightforward guidance and criticism. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. Hey everyone, this is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. We're back with season two of the podcast, which means more opportunities to glow up and become a more responsible and better adult, one life lesson at a time. And let me just tell you, this show is just as much for us as it is for you. So let's figure this stuff out together. This season, we're going to talk about whether or not we're financially and emotionally ready for dog ownership. We're going to figure out the benefits of a high-yield savings account. And what exactly are the duties of being a member of the wedding party? All that plus so much more. Let's learn about all of it and then some. Listen to Grown Up Stuff How to Adult on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Grown Up Stuff. Right. Uh as you started to get out there and tour and, you know, play shows outside of the general Pacific Northwest, 
was it uh, was it one of those things that you liked touring immediately, or did you have to grow to like it? What was your relationship with touring? At first, um, I mean, our first tour that we did was a Western Canada tour. So it was a part of the U.S. I'd never been to. And so um, I think that that was really magical for me in a lot of ways. And I'm sure it'll be the same way when we go to Europe. And being able to experience new parts of the world because of music, I think, is really beautiful. Um, And, um, you know, we wouldn't do anything longer than like a handful of days. Uh, The longest tour we did before COVID was, I think, probably two weeks long, three weeks long. And, um, and so now, you know, looking back at the, the history that we had last year, where we did two and a half months and, you know, the last quarter of the year, September through December, um, it is an entirely different experience now because, um, and it, you know, the band is elevated to another level. So it definitely has more of a, of a, um, serious, vibe and a more professional vibe than when we first were just playing a hand handful of shows on a, on a run with our friends in small rooms, you know? Yeah, for sure. Right. Like just doing the, you know, weekend shows when you can hop on them when your friend's band's coming through or whatever. Yeah. And I mean, that's a really, really important part of a band's growth. And that was like, you know, that was something that, you know, we'll probably never do again, at least in this band. And so it's cool to, um, to look back on and have had that experience. And now that we're at another level, you know, learn something new. Sure. And, um, no matter what kind of happens within the context of a band, people rightly or wrongly focus on the singer, you know, whether it's like, Oh, oh like that is clearly the mouthpiece. That's the most, you know, interactive person on stage. Uh, how did you do with, uh, I guess the attention that was paid to you from that respect, uh, where it was, I'm sure there was moments of feeling uncomfortable or whatever, or did you, uh, I guess, confidently step into that to be like, Oh, I, I understand that's going to happen, but you know, I can handle it. Um, I understand that it's, um, something I'm going to be exposed to and deal with, uh, for probably the entirety of my career. Um, I will say that I am kind of, um, I do have a lot of social anxiety and, um, I, can be social, but it takes a lot out of my social battery for me to, um, you know, be up on stage and, you know, talking to people all the time and I need, I need recharge. So I think that, um, it was really strange for me to spend a year and a half in a COVID quarantine, um, just doing a lot of healing and spending time alone and learning so much about myself and realizing that I am kind of an introvert and then being put into, this, um, environment where I'm being looked at constantly, I think, um, definitely was a little shocking to me at first, but, um, it's been a learning curve and it's something that on this last tour, I grew so much more comfortable into my role and hopefully something that, you know, I'll, um, you know, have full control over, um, and feel really confident, but I'm still kind of in a, in a learning phase where I'm, uh, trying to find the ropes of how to navigate this within my own self. Sure. Yeah. And I appreciate you saying it like that. Cause I do think, no, I mean, no matter what, no matter where a person is at on their own personal journey, putting yourself out there is, you know, going to be jarring, even if you've done it for 10 years, especially when the idea that once you put art out in the world, you don't 
know how people are going to react to it and then how they're going to put that reaction on top of you. So I'm sure you've had interactions that, like you said, your social battery gets, you know, pretty drained. I'm sure there are people that are coming up to you with some pretty, um, you know, intense interactions uh, as far as their, the effect that your music has had on them. Yeah. And honestly, I live for the moments where I'm able to connect with people and hear about um, an impact that I've had on them or that our music has had on them. And it's so crazy because I still look at myself as like such a normal person, I guess. Like, you know, so it's like I I really I, I feel I love to connect with people on that personal level at shows. I think the biggest thing for me probably is the Internet where there is this level of humanity that's kind of lost in the way that we treat each other and um, the way that people either objectify me or, um, you know, uh, say things that they think are going to be hurtful because um, either they don't respect women or they just genuinely don't like me for whatever reason, even though they don't know me. So I think that is probably where um, it's toughest for me is, um, you know, articles on the internet and comments and stuff like that. And, um, I have just kind of learned that I can't really read the comments um, <laughs> and separating myself from that has been really good for, for my confidence and for my mental health. Right. Yeah. It's like actually taking the advice. Cause a lot of people say that they won't read those comments, but you know, human nature is always attracted to like, well, what, I wonder what people are saying. And then you're just like, damn it. I wish I didn't do that again. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a curiosity and, you know, I will have to check myself because I'll look at the comments on a video and it's 20 people saying nice things. And then there's one comment where someone's rude and, um, you know, then I have to like really uh, level with myself and be like, this doesn't matter. You know what I mean? And the overwhelming love and support <clears throat> can't be um, negated because of one bad comment. But um, yeah, I definitely think I do give into the curiosity a little bit every once in a while, especially if it's something new that we had just put out, like first couple hours of a release of a music video or a live set or whatever, I will, um, kind of tune in to see what people think. But, um, I think as time goes on, that's something I'll have to do less of. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's you, you're, you're taking your own advice. That's good. <laughs> right. Um, so with the uh, collision of music and, you know, doing a band and touring and everything like that, and then the business implications, you know, working with a record label, working with booking agents, um, was that always something that you were, uh, I mean, clearly it's comfortable with because you were doing many of those things, but uh, w was there kind of a, a learning curve in regards to like what that actually means in this day and age, or were you guys all genuinely, you know, uh, comfortable with proceeding with that? Well, everything just came very organically um, to a, a point where it felt very easy. And I have to thank our manager, Tom, which is how you and I connected, because he is not only such a wonderful person and friend to me, but he has um, always kept this band's best interests at the forefront of his mind. And um, he has guided us in so many ways that have been good for us. And it's just felt like, you know, um, a really great process. Of course, a little bit of learning, but, um, no, no, like negative, um, feelings really about any of that. No, that's cool. I mean, especially to, like you said, when these things happen, where you feel like at the core of it, you know, label manager, whoever it is you're bringing into your circle, you feel like actually has your best interest at heart where like you're both benefiting from the relationship, but then at the core of it, they care about you as an individual. Oh, absolutely. And Tom's, Tom's the best. He's, he's, uh, I feel so lucky every day 
that um, he is the guy that we, you know, that we picked. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's really cool. Um, as you started to, um, you know, I work more professionally with uh, shows and and kind of understanding how these different uh, scenes of music, you know, inter- not only interact with one another because they're all coming through the same venues. Um, what were some uh, interesting learnings that you got, uh, you know, taking from the DIY hardcore shows that you were putting together and then being able to work on a more, you know, professional level as shows came through? Hmm. Um, I guess, honestly, the most important takeaway from coming from a DIY space is that so many people in the industry do. And, um, a lot of, I brought a lot of the mentality along with me. And I think that that was like, that's the most important part, um, of, you know, my day to day working in a venue or production is, you know, um, having the correct mentality when you walk in the door and when you're working with the artist and stuff like that. Um, and like I said, um, there's a lot of people within the industry that come from, you know, a smaller hardcore metal scene, um, and carry that with them every day as well. Right. Yeah, no, it's cool. Especially when you, have when you're starting to meet people outside of your musical world that are maybe you know existing in a whole different scene but then you can kind of see what it is that they're doing that you could maybe you know not only apply to the shows you're putting on but then you know also just like your own band like you're able to kind of learn from all these different places yeah i mean it's it's uh it's a big world with so much to learn all the time and being open to to that is huge right 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 that's really cool um, two last things I wanted to hit on was the, uh, you know, now that the world is opening up in regards to the tours happening on a more regular basis. And, you know, you guys are ostensibly over the course of the next, you know, year, year and a half, we're going to be playing some of the biggest shows you've ever played. And I'm sure including like furnace fest on that. Um, how, how is it that you are, uh, I guess, adjusting to, you know, playing uh, stages, <laughs> like having, it's like, wow, I'm playing in front of 500 people as opposed to a hundred, which I played, you know, a year ago or whatever. Um, does it, does it mess with your head at all? Or is it something that you're just like, well, I just need to take this as, you know, another show. Um, I think that I have to prepare in a, in a different way for it, for sure. Um, but um part of it does feel like it comes pretty naturally to me. And a lot of it has to do with how great the rest of my band is, you know, their energy and, um, their presence is, um, makes me feel really comfortable in being able to, you know, perform the way that I like to perform. But I definitely have noticed that I have grown as a performer since we've started playing on these bigger, bigger stages in every way. Um, and, it's, it's such a different experience and, um, being able to look out into the crowd when they have the floodlights on and seeing, you know, uh, like when we were on tour with motionless and white, we played a venue that was sold out. Uh, it was the, um, the, uh, masquerade mm, in yes. Atlanta, uh, heaven. And that was the biggest crowd we'd ha- played to at the time. And then furnace fest. And, you know, it is you, I definitely have to take myself out of the moment a little bit just to, um, be like, okay, like this is, this is not that crazy, I guess. Sure. <laughs> um, and you know, try not to freak myself out in the moment, but it's, it's definitely something that the, the more I do it, the more comfortable I feel. Right. Right. Um, and the, the last thing mentioning of with the amount of, 
you know, kind of attention that the band is getting and the, you know, interesting opportunities that kind of open up uh, to you guys, not only from a touring perspective, but just kind of like, oh, hey, do you want to, you know, appear in this video game or whatever? Not to say that that's happened to you guys, but just a random example. Um, what are things that I guess have have surprised you in regards to the opportunities that you have gotten, whether it is, you know, touring or whether it is these other random things that have popped up that are like, oh, I, yeah, this feels right. I would like to do this, you know, benefit comp or whatever. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the tour opportunities that we have received uh, or opportunities are, um, I mean, there's a couple that I can't talk about yet because it's not been announced, but like uh, nothing I would have really thought about in my wildest dreams. And um, I would say that's um, definitely the biggest um, kind of shocking aspect of it. And also the media uh, outlets that want to uh, support us like revolver has been huge and um liquid metal has been huge and all of these um you know bigger uh media parts of the industry that want to support us i mean honestly like two years ago i don't think that any of us would have expected that we would be where we are now especially with the pandemic so it's it's all it's all amazing <laughs> right <laughs> you're like wow I, I guess people care about us like this is kind of weird but okay thank you appreciate it <laughs> Right. And I mean, I love the record and I'm so proud of it, but just like, I think that since we put out the record and since we've been touring, I mean, it's been a year and a half since we recorded it and wrote it. And I just, you know, I think that we learned so much and we're going to keep getting better and doing bigger things and, you know, just keeping that, um, that future in mind is, is huge. Right. Absolutely. Uh, and I would be remiss if I did not say, why are you uh, so connected to the city of, of Portland still, obviously, beyond the fact that you were, you know, born and raised in that general area? Um, you know, a lot of people may misunderstand Portland. So what, what keeps you connected to the city? I, I love this city. Um, I don't know, you know, I've lived in other parts of Oregon, but this is home. And I, I was actually talking to my mom about this earlier where, you know, I've tossed around the idea of moving to Nashville or uh, at one point I thought Philadelphia or maybe LA. And it's just like, my roots are here and I don't feel like I'll ever really get to a place where I want to leave. And I can't really explain why that is, you know, I just, I have so many wonderful people here and, you know, I know the place like the back of my hand and, um, you know, I have my blazers and, um, just, it, it, it's an, un, it's an indescribable feeling how someone, how somewhere can feel like home, but, you know, and it's, it's got its own present issues, um, especially with our, um, you know, our houselessness and our local government. And, but it's, it's something that I don't want to run from. It's something that I would like to say, like, you know, see and be a part of the solution. Right. Well, especially to what you were talking about earlier in regards to, you know, feeling connected to your city and then, you know, potentially getting involved in social work or whatever that may mean where, you know, you can't just cut and run. You want to be, you know, supportive over the place that has offered you so much. Yes, 100%. Totally. That's cool. Well, Emma, this has been great. You're great. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you, Ray. I really appreciate you having me. That was a great conversation. Like I said, if you have not checked out Dying Wish, please do that. Your life will be greater because of it. That record I listen to constantly. So thank you, Emma. And again, thank you, Tom, her manager, for pulling all the strings together. Anyways... You are in for a treat next week. 
because I have Patrick Carey from the almighty Limbeck. I love Limbeck so much. And Patrick has become a friend over uh, many years of just being at the same shows and my uh, incessant punishment anytime I see him about how much I love his band. But um, yeah, Patrick, great human being. And I had to have him on the show. And Limbeck is a good band. So that's what happens. And we are growing ever so closer to the 500th episode, which I cannot wait to tell you who's on that show. But anyways, that is what we got next week. Until then, please be safe, everybody. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Trust me in saying that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all of the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. Hey everyone, this is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. Let's learn about all of it and then some. Listen to Grown Up Stuff How to Adult on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Grown Up Stuff. Grown Up Stuff.